Tonight, you get to try your hand at solving a deadly crime. I'm Richard. And I'm Gary. And these are our incredible stories. Hello and welcome back to all of our friends around the world and across the United States. We're happy to have you back with us for some more incredible stories. Uh, before we get started wrapping up our uh, episode on the uh, the Berlin serial killer during World War II, um, I just want to welcome any new listeners to our show. Welcome. Uh, thank you for joining our group. And uh, if you like what you hear, um, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. You'll be treated to uh, new episodes every Friday. Right here with us on whatever podcast station uh, you listen to your podcast from. And if you think somebody else is going to like these kind of stories, because it is a trail mix of stories, sometimes we'll have a little of this and a little of that, um, go ahead, share it with them on social media. We appreciate it. There's always room for one more. Yes, indeedy. And I just like to echo those sentiments, Gary, and welcome each and every one of you who um, are, are listening here this evening to our podcast. A special shout-out to our listeners in Australia and Canada. You folks have been incredibly loyal at listening to each and every one of the podcasts week after week. So special shout-out to you, but we're also uh, realizing that everybody who is listening is very special to us. Oh, yeah. Well, we, we've got uh, people all over the place listening, and, and uh, so I, we're just excited that you like our stories. That's that's the mm-hmm. that's the great thing. So as long yeah. as you guys are being entertained, we can still pump out stories. Right. All right, so getting back into the thick of it, uh, when last we left off with our crime drama, and again, just as a reminder, uh, if you are squeamish, uh, this may not be an episode for you, but... Uh, that being said, if you're listening to the second part, then, well, obviously you already knew that and you wanted to come back for some more. So here we go. Right. And uh, not only squeamish, but I would not say that uh, this episode is suitable for younger audiences. So please, please use discretion and whether or not you're going to listen to tonight's podcast. We yes. understand if you have to miss it. That's fine. That's fine. Right. Um, <clears throat> well... When England and France declared war on Hitler's Germany, that was back in September 1, 1939, World War II officially began. And tonight, I'm going to ask Gary to lead you, our listeners, in solving some deadly crimes committed in Berlin, Hitler's capital city, more than 80 years ago during the World War II blackout of Berlin when lights were out and I mean every light now in order to fully appreciate tonight's mental exercise I'm going to ask that everyone be familiar with the background information that we presented in episode one so if you need to refresh your memory you might want to re-listen to episode one because we're going to ask you to use some um mental gymnastics and help us solve this yes 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 so there we go with that we're going to begin tonight you folks along with gary are criminal investigators you're attempting to solve a series of deadly assaults and murders 
First, you must decide if a serial killer is on the loose or are you dealing with multiple attackers. Let's start there. Gary, lead the investigation. Well, based on the clues that we were given, uh, a man of small, regular build, was it? Yeah, small stature. Small stature, regular build, um, wore a uniform of somebody who worked on a train. Uh, everything was happening around train tracks. In a particular area. In a particular area. That, to me, based on patterns and behavior, uh, I'm going to say it's the the work of one person. A serial killer. A serial killer. Okay. Serial killers work in patterns. So this is Gary's conclusion, and of course, folks, um, you may or may not come to a different conclusion, but that's fine. Um, that said, Gary, let's uh, proceed uh, along the line of thinking that we're dealing with a serial killer here, which, by the way, is what uh, the criminal police in Berlin decided. Right. But this was before the term serial killer came out there. Right, right. They they didn't serial call killer. It a serial killer. They said they were dealing with one individual. Right, right. Serial killer didn't come out until that phrase wasn't used until the seventies. Yeah. So, <clears throat> uh, I'm not going to tell you what they did next. I want you now to use your brain. All right, there you are in the squad room of the yeah. criminal polizei, the criminal police in Berlin, Germany, uh-huh. and you're sitting around strategizing. You've got the guy's description. You've got the guy's method of operation. You've got the general location where these things are happening. And you've got a possible connection with the German railway system based on the fact that one of the witnesses said the attacker was wearing a uniform of a railroad employee. Uh-huh. What do you do next? Well, I would start uh, going to the railway uh, area. The rail. See, I keep tripping over my <laughs> words. I get so excited about trying to figure these things out, and uh-huh. I trip over my words. Sounds like I'm having a mini stroke over here. <laughs> what I was going to say is, if I were a detective, I would go to the railway station where things were happening, and I would start uh, trying to ask questions and maybe do a little observation little stake out you know maybe okay. set up a few traps for those who are um have english as a second language what, what's a stake out stake out well anybody who loves watching a good crime movie a stake out is not going out for steak no no it's not it's where you have two cops typically like you know in a cop buddy movie at least two at least two and they'll sit in their car or they'll find a, a spot to chill out and they'll watch and they'll see what happens. And it won't be just like one day. It'll be for a few days, maybe a week or months. Could be for a while, you know, and and that's what they do. And that is referred to as a surveillance. That's a, the official police term. Or a stakeout. A stakeout, right. Now, I'm going to add some new information that we haven't shared until this moment. But since the Berlin police were aware of this, now you should be aware of it. By the autumn of 1940, after that successful blitzkrieg in the West, Berlin was awash with foreign workers. These were not Germans. These were foreigners, and they were usually shipped to Germany against their will to meet the critical labor shortages. 
So now in Berlin, we've got all of these foreign workers who necessarily uh, not necessarily wanted to really be there. Right. And so they're maybe not respectful of German ways and customs and culture or anything else. They're foreigners. Uh-huh. Most likely they're against their will. Now, another thing, that huge foreign presence that I'm talking about, it was particularly noticeable on a stretch of railway tracks where the murders and assaults were occurring. And there was actually a form of a mini concentration camp for foreign workers there who had committed crimes in the same area. So they, they had a little penal camp for foreign workers who committed minor crimes to, you know, serve a little time, get rehabilitated and come back into the labor force. So, were they looking at foreigners as being the cause of the murders? Well, I don't know. Is this useful information? You are the police detective. You tell me. It seems a little too obvious to me. Okay. So. That's, that's like a, a simple, like, you know, let's just, we'll, we'll peg it on this group of people because they're outsiders. Let's go ahead. We'll, we'll say it was them. Okay. Now, remember from last week, one of the survivors reported that she'd been attacked on a train by a man wearing the uniform of a German railway worker. Is this help? Right. Well, yeah, I mean, that was one of the things I talked about when you were asking me about what I remembered. So, I, again, if, if I were a detective, I would mainly focus on what I know and then go from there. Now, listen to this. Italian, French, and Polish foreign workers were a very common sight in wartime Berlin. And guess where a number of them were working? The railway station. Yeah, the the railway system. So a a considerable number of foreign laborers, French, Polish, Italian, were working for the German railroad. What does this tell you? There was a lot of foreigners working for the German railroad? Yeah. Yeah. So what would you do next? You're in the squad room and you're deciding what to... uh, I would still go with the fact that it's happening at the railway station. I mean, regardless of who it is, you know where it's happening. So I think just surveilling that entire area... Yeah, not just the railway station, but don't forget uh, he's killing people on a train and throwing the bodies off the train. Sure, so I would... That that whole... But in a specific area, that's the main thing. In a specific area. So uh, I would still... I mean, I would have everybody set up in the station, on the train, that kind of stuff. I mean, you cover your bases. Great. You just anticipated my next question. I was going to ask you what you do next because you've got the method of operation, you know, the general area where a future crime may take place, and you have a description from a surviving victim, a male of slight build and average height. So somebody possibly who's wearing the German railway uniform so, yes, that's exactly what you would do. You would at least set up a surveillance. Is there anything else you do besides just looking and watching? Well, I mean, that's that's kind of all you really could do at that at that time besides doing interviews. No, no. I, w- I would set up interviews and I would mm-hmm. do surveillance. I mean, okay, s- interviews and surveillance, good. There's one other thing, though, that's pretty common police practice. What about... Putting a police decoy on a train. Wouldn't that be the same thing as surveillance? Oh, I mean, you, you have somebody up there. I think that's in a different category when you start to set bait out and, and send in decoys. Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, like, for example, 
the TV show Cops, right? Mm-hmm. They would do those prostitution stings, mm-hmm. and they put the the you know the undercover cop out there. Same thing with drug deals and stuff like that. But it's still surveillance. You know, they they have the decoy out there, who's looking and watching. They look unassuming, you know, um, but they they see what's going on. Mm-hmm. It's it's easier. It's easier than having somebody who's you know in a uniform. It's too obvious. I mean, any kind of surveillance you would have to do as somebody who looks like an average citizen. Okay. And particularly somebody that would be a target. Mm -hmm. All right. So you have um, analyzed it, and this is your plan of action. Hopefully our listeners uh, have analyzed along with you and have come up with their own plan of action, maybe uh, resembling yours, maybe not. Here's what the criminal police guys with tons of experience decided to do. Okay. The foreign workers, the camps in that area were placed under a nightly curfew. Uh-oh. <clears throat> you can't be going out on about at nighttime. Uh-oh. Uh, so they put a curfew in place for those foreign laborers at those foreign labor camps. Yeah. Number one. I, th- I think that makes sense. Yeah. Number two, they went to the, um, you know, bookkeepers and records keepers of the railroad system for Berlin, and they requested information. Um, they did identity checks on the foreign personnel. They issued a reward. Here's one thing maybe our listeners uh, came up with. They issued a reward of 10,000 Reichmarks for information leading to an arrest. So that was part of their plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then officers were patrolling the streets, the stations and platforms, and they even volunteered to accompany women traveling alone at night. Yeah. Uh, and then male officers in drag were placed on the trains as bait. Now... For those who are unfamiliar with drag, mm-hmm. um, that yeah. would be uh, a gentleman who dresses in the uh, female attire. Um, and in this case, uh, it was a, not so much as a, a personal choice, uh, but as a, a way to fool the killer into believing that he was going to be attacking <clears throat> a potential victim. Only to be surprised. Now, most of these um, veteran-hardened police detectives uh, in the daylight couldn't fool you by pretending to be a woman by dressing as a woman. (laughs) But in the darkness, in the blacked-out trains, it could work. Potentially. Because you could only potentially maybe make out how a person is dressed. So in a blackout train, it could work. But And you you have to make sure you don't talk. Yeah, right, right. Because if you have that deep, you know... It's all over. ...timber to your voice. Mm-hmm. It's all over. But, That's it. Uh, that didn't work too well, by the way. That didn't result uh, in much of anything. So that's when they started asking their female colleagues to um, fill that role as well. Now, they were equipped with reinforced headwear to protect them from attack. Because yeah, now, didn't they wear wigs with helmets in it? It was something like that. Uh, yeah, they, they protected their, their headgear in some way protected them. How obvious would that be, though? I mean, that, well, again, it's dark. Well, yeah, but I mean, 
I think somebody would think like, wow, that person's hair looks mm-hmm. quite ginormous and uh, mm-hmm. a little bit peculiar. Yeah. You know, that, that might be a little bit of a giveaway. I think if it were a helmet disguised as a hat, mm-hmm. that that would definitely be a little bit more effective. And maybe it was. Uh, we just, I don't know of any photos of this um, that exist. So I, I really couldn't tell you what that reinforced headwear actually uh, consisted of. But anyways, right. this was the entire plan put into place by the criminal Pulitzer. So now, one night that winter. Yes. One of the female criminal police officers acting as bait was traveling along in a second-class coach when she was approached by a man matching the description of the killer. Yeah. Following a brief exchange, however, Mm -hmm. the man suspected something. Yeah. He became alarmed and he bolted out of the train as it was approaching the station and disappeared into the darkness. Well, that doesn't sound suspicious at all. <laughs> that was definitely a close encounter uh, with the police and a very, very good suspect. I would say so. But our killer is still loose on February 11th, 1949. Uh, not 1949, what am I saying? February 11th, 1941. Yeah. Uh, a 39-year-old woman's body was found by the railroad tracks in the same area as the other attacks. She suffered blunt trauma injuries to the head being before being thrown off the train. And now, did you say that was a decoy? No. this That is was just a regular citizen. Another victim, yeah. So, you uh, counting her as one of your victims of the serial killer at this point? Yeah, well, no, she's definitely a victim. She wasn't, un- she survived, right? No. She didn't survive? She died? Her body was found. Oh, her body was found. Oh. Yeah, no, He's. she's definitely a victim. Yeah, not a suicide, not an accident. Okay, now we're coming to the killer's next and final attack, which was five months later <clears throat> in July of 1941. This time, this clever guy, Uh, changed his method of operation, Gary, switching from making his assault on the trains. Yeah. He reverted to his early attack tactic. Remember that one? Attacking women in the alleys near where he had killed his first victim nine months earlier. Sure. So there in the early morning of July 3rd, 1941, we discover the body of a 35-year-old divorcee. She died from a single blow with a blunt instrument. The criminal police investigators concluded she had been hit from behind and then sexually assaulted, and she had absolutely no chance to defend herself. Oh. Mm-hmm. But at this point, the detective work began to bear fruit. For one thing, the latest crime scene had given investigators a crucial piece of evidence, an impression of a rubber sole shoe. Oh. Presumably from the killer's shoe. Bum, 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 bum. More evidence. July 3rd, 1941. Now we have a rubber sole shoe imprint to add to everything else. Yes. So um, 
Now what do you do? You're in the squad room. What happens next? You're sitting with a couple more victims. You're sitting with a slight change of method of operation. Uh, you're uh, sitting with a near miss <clears throat> between decoy and suspect. And you've got this rubber shoe impression. Where do you go from there? Find out what kind of shoe it is. <clears throat> go back to the strange, uh, train station and try and match it up with somebody who works over at the train station. Right, or with the railroad, um, with the yeah, railroad, railroad in general, whatever, not just yeah. at the train station. So what the uh, police did, they analyzed the different shift patterns of railway employees, <clears throat> who was on duty when and where. Right. And in doing so, they discovered eight suspects who were on duty at the right time, at the right place. Right when the mur- all of the murders and attacks took place. So that should be a little bit closer uh, to narrowing, yeah. narrowing things down. So out of thousands of employees, now you're down to eight, but you're down to eight, any one of which fulfills all the criteria for being the killer. So right. uh, there's still some head scratching here. Of course. Um What do you think? Supposing they pick out uh, uh, one of these employees, um, how, how would uh, how would they become a stronger suspect from the other eight? Do you have any idea? Well, if somebody seems suspicious, then I would focus my attention onto that person and their routines and behaviors. So suspicious meaning like nervous during the interrogation? Nervous during the interrogation. I mean, the, the thing is, is that body language can be a big tell for certain people. Uh, some people wear their emotions on their sleeves, and so they, they tend to uh, make themselves a little bit easier to, to pick out. Some people, not so much. But I think if, if somebody, regardless of whether or not they seem like they're um, a bit nervous during an investigation, if somebody seems like they fit the match as far as when they're working the shoe, uh, their behavior, and even maybe some, like I said, in, uh, interviews with other employees about that person, if the person seems to have some of the same traits and patterns to their work and and life uh, as far as, you know, when they're out, when they like to be out, what time they work when they're uh, there, I think it would make it a little bit easier to narrow it down to, to focus on a person or uh, more than one, maybe two people. Um, so I think that that definitely makes a difference. Okay, great. Uh, I think you've given some very good guidance to our listeners to uh, as to how to approach this uh, logically. I'm going to tell you about one of the suspects who was 29 years old. This is one of eight. Now, this is not necessarily the killer. You and our listeners are going to have to tell me whether or not he's a strong suspect or not. Okay. Um, If not, then we'll bring in somebody else. He was uh, 29 years old. He was assistant signalman. So guess what? He worked for the railroad, right? Right. And he was was, um, brought in as one of the suspects after they... Uh, thoroughly analyzed all the shift patterns. He was on duty in the right area for all of the murders and attacks. Uh, his name was Paul Ogerzow. Yeah. Now, 
here's a Paul situation, and you tell me if he was a strong suspect, and then I'll tell you what the police decided. Okay. He walked into the interview. Oh, first of all, he'd been employed by the S-Bahn trains yeah. in that area since 1938. Uh-huh. So he'd been there for, oh, okay, we're looking close to three years now, right? Right. He was not nervous, as you suggested. He did not act suspicious, as you suggested. He was confident. He was coherent. They looked at his work records. They described him as very industrious. Mm -hmm. And get this. They examined his background, and he was happily married with two children. Yeah, but that doesn't mean anything. That's the thing about a serial killer. I mean, like, John Wayne Gacy was married with... uh, kids and uh people who described ed gein said that ed was a harmless uh, friendly guy who lived out in the country a little eccentric but they didn't see anything wrong with him okay so anyhow in my mind he's not fitting the profile of a serial killer at least not yet now they also discovered he was a member of the nazi party and in germany at that time guess what that's a plus not a negative yeah well i mean i think that well, if you have, in that time, World War II, if a lot of the people who are working are part of the Nazi party, how would they not trust somebody who they think is loyal to the country? Right, and in order to get good jobs and important jobs, you had to be a member of the party. So he was a member, in good standing, I might add. Uh, so... Everything shouted out that he was a solid, upstanding member of German society. And in my mind, he doesn't fit the profile of a serial killer. But it's you who and our listeners who are analyzing this. So what do you all say? I don't think serial killers go out there uh, advertising that they're serial killers. To them, what they're doing is normal for them. And they're completely comfortable with it. So it probably... Uh, he probably wouldn't be as nervous uh, as somebody who feels like they're being uh, accused of being a murderer. And maybe he's a little bit cocky, you know. Some people are like that. Some people are so confident that they'll never be caught that they don't, they don't show any nervousness. Okay. Here's what history tells us. The criminal police said... No, he was not the serial killer. He was dismissed, and they began looking more closely at the other seven. Now, you are in that squad room with your fellow criminal police detectives. Uh You still believe what you just said. How would you go about resurrecting interest in Paul, um, despite the fact that your colleague said he's just not the one? I become a lone wolf, (laughs) a rogue police officer who decides to start his own investigation outside of what I was told to do. Good. That's exactly what I I would do that. Mm -hmm. And that's what some of the investigators did. They began talking uh, further to fellow employees. And, oh, look what they turned up. According to my records, he was an outspoken misogynist. What is a misogynist? Oh, Somebody who's not a fan of having women in the workplace. and uh, Somebody who's definitely anti-female. Yeah, 
sexist. Oh, yeah, more than sexist. Misogynist. They they are really, you know, anti-woman. So, uh-oh, yeah. uh-oh. I think that raises a few more red Ooh, flags there. The red flags just went up there in my mind, too. His colleagues say he was outspoken Ugh. in his uh, distaste for women, and yet he was married, for gosh sakes. Uh, how, how do you figure that? Um, one of his workmates, listen to this, because you've investigated a little further after he was dismissed, stated that uh, he had seen him jumping the perimeter fence of the railway one night while on duty. More, more, more evidence, more evidence. So based on those two additional pieces of information by detectives such as you and some of our uh, listeners, on July 12, 1941, Paul was arrested and formally questioned again. At this point, they discovered that his shoe print matched the police forensic evidence. Aha! Uh -huh. So six days later, after a lengthy interrogation... Paul Argazol, Ogerzow finally admitted to eight cases of murder, six cases of attempted murder, and 31 cases of sexual assault. Wow. Now he raised an unusual defense. He claimed that his predatory and sexually aggressive behavior was caused uh, earlier in his life by an unconventional treatment by a Jewish doctor. What do you think of that defense? Uh, ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, uh, now, that being said, uh, you know, some, not all, but some people who are uh, serial killers had some kind of trauma in their life that resulted in uh, them becoming uh, who they are as a person, you know, in early on in young life. And that's not everybody. I'm not uh, saying that's everybody. Some people have suffered from in, uh, mental illness and, and other things that may have also contributed to, uh, to them doing uh, some of the horrible things that they've done. Um, but to me, it just seems like um, an, an excuse, an escape uh, used to, uh, to just try and, you know, he was desperate. Justify for, what he was doing. Desperate for some kind of defense. I yeah. Mean, that's yeah. a lot of crime, right? Yeah. A lot of crime. Did you hear those numbers that I reeled off? Uh -huh. Yeah. All right. So. Um, I mean, and it's World War II, Nazi mm -hmm. Germany. I mean, and that's that's the excuse he comes up with. Right. Well, the criminal police guys didn't buy it either, Gary. Of course not. And so in their final report on July 22, 1941, they described Paul Ogerzow as being a completely calculating and deadly sexual predator without any inhibitions and unable to satisfy his sexual urges without killing or seriously harming his innocent victims. A sociopath. Pretty doggone good police work, wouldn't you say? So anyways, barely two days later after that, on uh, July 25th, 1941, Paul was executed. He expressed no regrets, no remorse. And the criminal police report concluded that he had willingly and consciously exploited the blackout in carrying out his crimes. That's, that's mental illness right there. The blackout had been his ablest and most accommodating accomplice 
So, Gary, how did you and hopefully our listeners feel about trying to work your way through this case logically and coming up with a serial killer? Well, I mean, the evidence was all presented right there, you know. So, through logic, through logic, I think it was... And you also used some creative easier. imagination to describe some of the techniques you would do to uh, take that evidence and, you know, aggressively pursue oh, the killer. Sure. Well, I mean, anybody who likes to read um, Sherlock Holmes, mm-hmm. you know, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Ooh, love it. Love was fantastic books. at uh, yeah. describing in his books uh, the method of which to look for things that go unobserved by the casual criminologist Mm -hmm. and so uh you know and i isn't it because of sherlock holmes that the uh modern a lot of the modern day techniques for uh forensics were uh developed i think so i believe so like walking the grid i think was one of those uh yeah so and certain other things great stories if you haven't read some folks you want to read some sherlock holmes well i have to say that was definitely an interesting story Uh, one that uh is part of uh World War II uh, era, uh, and and not one that would be, you know, actually uh, known about unless there weren't people to share that interesting story. Yeah, and who in their wildest dreams would have ever thought this kind of story could be connected with a blackout? Oh, well, I mean, what better opportunity for the uh, seedy, gruesome criminals and their twisted minds to take advantage of a moment and then a blackout. But as for right now, I am Richard and I'm Gary. And we're glad that you joined us for another incredible story. And we hope that you join us again next time. And like I said before, if you liked what you heard, hit that like and subscribe. And if you think somebody else might really like these kind of stories or any future episodes, go ahead and share us on social media till next time.